Hey, New Life Church, Bronson Duke here. Thanks for listening in. The heart of our church is that you would know Jesus, that you would walk with Jesus, and you would learn how to live like he lived. We hope that this message equips you and empowers you on your journey walking with Jesus. All right. Hey, it's, it's a little bit longer service today. I know we're just getting started, but don't worry. We've got some good stuff for you. But if you could do this, stand to your feet uh, for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we believe that God's Word is holy, and so we just want to show reverence and honor with our posture. And so Zach is going to read this for us. Amen. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurried a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How could you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he'll pay attention to us and spare our lives. The crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. The stormy sea was too violent for them. They couldn't make it. They cried out to the Lord Jonah's God. Oh Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you've sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked up Jonah. They threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside that fish for three days and three nights. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's a gift to us, God, that it reveals us your heart and your character and the keys to life. God, I pray that this morning that you would speak so clearly. Come, Holy Spirit. God, deliver this word from our minds to our hearts. God, teach us your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Hey, you can have a seat. Uh, If you're new to our community, my name is Bronson. I'm one of the leaders and pastors here. And We've been in the book of Colossians for the previous 12 weeks. We studied through that book together, and now we're starting the book of Jonah. And so we're going to go through this over the next four weeks. And so we've got the series starting on the book of Jonah, and it's a fascinating book. It really is. If you've ever studied the book of Jonah outside of like Sunday school, Sunday school kind of liquidates Jonah down to what part of the story? Does anybody know? 
It's the fish, right? Everything's about the fish because it's kind of fantastic, and that's what you think about. Uh, but there's so many things happening within this story. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's way more than just a story of a guy getting swallowed by a fish. It's a fascinating book that asks us to wrestle with some of the deepest questions of the human experience. It's simple. It's a simple narrative. Uh, but at the same time, it's actually incredibly complex and asks us to wrestle with the tale of God and his love in light of the wickedness of men. And it's brilliant, the way it's, been, the way it's put together. And so this is the story of extreme selfishness on the part of Jonah, extreme repentance on the part of the pagans, and extreme love on the part of God. Uh, this is not a story about a big fish. This is the story of a gracious God. This is a story explaining us to the heart of Yahweh. That was God's personal name that he gave to his people, the Israelites. Uh, this is the story of God's justice and mercy and how those two things work together. So we're going to wrestle with things like life and death and evil and goodness and all this kind of stuff within the book. And, and he, here's what I want to submit. It's a story about God. The Bible is a story of God's love, but it also is a story about us, each one of us. My story is found within this. I bet if I were to sit down with you, your story would be found with this. It's a story of where our vision as humans collides and differs with God's vision as God. And we have an option. We can obey or we can run away, right? So sermon title uh, for this morning is God Loves Who You Hate. God loves who you hate. Uh, God loves your enemies, oppressors, and abusers. Probably would have been a more accurate title, uh, but this one was shorter. So I went with God loves who you hate. Uh, recommended reading. Uh, we've been doing a lot of his stuff because he passed away this year. He's a legend in the faith, a guy named Timothy Keller. He has a book called The Prodigal Prophet. Uh, he's probably uh, the greatest apologist of our day. And so I, I recommend you get this if you're looking for additional resource. Um, I want to give you kind of the point that I'm going to try to drive home this morning. It's that God is using two of the most extreme examples in human history of depravity and religiosity to teach us something about his own heart and our very nature. Okay, so I want to take a moment. I want to do a collective, like, imaginative uh, moment here. Can we do that? Imaginative experience. So close your eyes. All right, everybody, 100% participation uh, across the room. Close your eyes. I'm not going to trick you or smack you when you close your eyes. Um, now, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine, just imagine, this couldn't possibly be you, but imagine that there's someone you know that you do not like. I know this can be a stretch for you all, all right? But imagine there's someone you don't like, somebody who's betrayed you, someone who's stolen from you, somebody who's hurt you deeply. You might even say, if you're honest, you kind of hate this person, okay? I want you to have this person in your mind, your least favorite person. Now I want you to imagine that you get to go to their house and deliver the news that the IRS is caught up to the fact that they haven't been paying their taxes. And the IRS is gonna be repossessing their home. All right, it's okay, it's okay to indulge a little bit. A little vengeance fantasy for a moment. All right, now, all, all eyes closed, continue to think about this, but then imagine, you know that after you deliver the news, the IRS is gonna absolve them of their debt if they're really sorry, and they write an apology letter. Not only do they get to keep their house, but their debt is gone. All the years they didn't pay taxes, poof, 
forgiven. While you paid your taxes and you struggled month to month, they didn't pay theirs and they lived in luxury and opulence. While you were eating ramen noodles, they were flying to New York City for steaks, okay? While, while you were saving and scrimping and dreaming of a vacation to Branson, they're traveling the world. Okay, you can, you can lift your eyes, all right? That moment that you felt, where this person who you hate was about to have vengeance come down on them, and all of a sudden, not only did they not have vengeance come down on them, but somehow they came out on top, how you felt thinking about that is a fraction of how Jonah felt when God asked him to go preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh. Whatever the worst thing someone did to you was, I can almost guarantee you these cats did worse to their enemies, okay? These were some of the most brutal people on earth in the history of the world, and they were the arch enemies at the time of the Israelites. Now, this next moment is going to be a little bit PG-13, and so if you have kids in here, I'm giving you a warning. Uh, you might want to either cover their ears or move them out. You've got about a minute, all right, before I hit this. Uh, it's not going to be the whole sermon. It's just going to be this one section, but I want to give you a warning. Um, these people were brutal. This book was written somewhere around 500 to 700 BC, um, and the Assyrians had been the superpower of the day, and they did some of the most awful things that any nation has done in history. These guys were straight up cold-blooded, all right? They would cut off both your arms, both your legs and one arm, excuse me, if you were captured. This was a common practice that they'd have to humiliate the people they captured, and they would shake your hands as you met death. One scholar referred to the Assyrians as a terrorist state, in the ancient world. Another said it's as gory and blood-curdling a history as we have ever known. Just to highlight how brutal this culture was, this is the worst part, so parents, earmuffs for kids. This is an excerpt from one of the writings of one of their kids, uh, of one of their kings. It's what the king wrote. He said, I filleted the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and I draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters, and built a tower with them before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others, their noses and ears and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living in one of their heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. This was a brutal, wicked, and terrifying people. And these are the people that God has told Jonah to go tell of their impending doom. And he didn't say, I'm sending you with an entourage. He's going on his own. He's walking his self into their city. And he's saying, in 40 days, God is going to judge you. This is a hilariously tall task, right? This is a hilariously tall ask. Um, now, Nineveh became the capital of the Assyrian nation in uh, 701 BC. And that same year, they attacked and brutalized the Israelites in Jerusalem. And God calls him to go minister to this people. So he runs. Here's the question that the book of Jonah forces us to wrestle with Do we really love God's mercy? Jonah 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. You know, we could say Jonah ran 
because he hated or he feared the pagans. I think that's pretty reasonable, right? That he would feel that way. But there's actually something much deeper going on, I think. Uh, it could be one of a few things. Number one, uh, he could have actually been afraid of the kickback his message was gonna bring, right? This is like standing up to a bully in the schoolyard. Um, you know there's gonna be hell to pay, right? I actually have a story about this. It doesn't super connect with the message, but it's too ironic not to share. Um, so in, in middle school, we had recess time, and we're out, and we're playing baseball, and the school bully, you can't make this up, his name was Jonah, all right? And there was a kid who was Sikh by religion, and uh, his name was Pavan, all right? So Pavan was playing first base. Uh, Jonah, I think, was batting or something like that was going on. And Pavan is just like laying into Jonah, all right? He's talking trash. Now, what Pavan doesn't know is that Jonah, I know this because I was his buddy, Jonah was incredibly insecure about the fact that he was big and muscular but wasn't athletic, all right? He was not coordinated at all. And so Pavan is just like letting him have it. And then finally he lays down the, the last, ring, last ringer and he goes, how's it in the whale, Jonah? <laughs> and I could see Jonah, that was the last straw. I'm like, Pavan, Jonah is gonna kill you. Like when we get into the locker room, whatever, Pavan's like unaware, all right? He's having a good time. They won the baseball game. I'm watching, I'm watching this whole thing. From that moment, I'm like, it's on. All right, so I'm watching Arpavan kind of like gallop into the locker room. I'm telling you the second he crossed into the locker room, Jonah comes across the back of his head with an elbow and beats him to a pulp, okay? <laughs> Pavan's a legend, all right? Uh, like, I I'm glad somebody had the courage to like talk to I don't know if it was courage or stupidity, but he did it, all right? This doesn't connect at all other than the fact that that's a, a hilarious story and the fact that his name is Jonah, I had to tell it. Okay, so did he run because of fear? I'm not so sure the text gives us evidence of that, all right? The text doesn't speak to that. Um, so let's scratch that. Let's say he didn't run because of, he was afraid. Why did he run? Let's have an honest moment. If I, had a, if I hated someone and God came to me and said, go declare judgment on them, I would be like, I've got permission, gladly, you know? Like, let's be real. As Christians, we don't like to admit that, but there's something in us that likes vigilance and justice, right? God gave you the excuse, go and do it, but he doesn't, he runs away. And he doesn't just run away, he, he runs like really far away. Look at this, this map, okay. That's Joppa, the port city that he went to. Nineveh's 550 miles away in modern day Iraq. He goes to Tarshish, all right? Which there's not a word in the Bible that makes you feel more like Sid the Sloth than Tarshish. I'm glad Zach had to read that word three times. 2,500 miles away in Spain. That's the edge of the known world. This is how far he runs away. Uh, our man was supposed to be in Iraq, and he is running to Spain. So why did he run? That's the question. That's the question we have to ask. I believe he ran because he understood the father heart of God. I think Jonah had a deep understanding of the dynamics of God's heart. Knowing that God's judgment paves the way for God's mercy. We believe that God as creator views all humans as his sons and daughters, people that he loves, people that he wants to see healed. And here's the thing about any earthly father who's healthy or parent, you wanna see your children healed, right? You'll never see a parent more desperate than when their child is sick. Think about it like this. Think about bullies. If you've ever sat down with a parent of a bully, I've done it a number of times. 
And if they're good parents, they're engaged, they're involved, they can't figure out why their kids are doing what they're doing, and it hurts them that their child is hurting other people. They're at a loss as to how to help, and so they punish them, right? They host interventions. They cooperate with the schools. They bring in other parents. They bring in pastors. They bring in friends. They do whatever they can do. What are they doing? They're actually bringing judgment down on the child that they love so that the child, in hopes that the child, will change their ways. And if they do, that parent meets that changed child with mercy and open arms. This is the heart of the mission of God. But listen, when the mission means mercy for people who have hurt us or people we hate, we often run from the mission. Listen, God is not Yahweh, the God of comfort, no matter how much I would like him to be. He is Yahweh, God of unending love, covenant love. And here's what I think. Jonah didn't just hate the pagans. He resented God for loving them. He resented God for loving the people who had persecuted them, oppressed them, and committed unspeakable atrocity. He could not understand how God could love a people so wicked. So he ran. Yo, know, it is easy to be hard on Jonah, right? Right? I, this, I was mad at Jonah as I was going through this this week. I like got emotional. I got like viscerally mad at him. Let's be real. Don't we kind of get it? Right? Like, I mean, who, who out there really burns your grits? <laughs> like, who bothers you? Who gets under your skin? I want you to think about it. Let some people come to mind. Another way, another way to say it is, who are the people that you hate? Maybe somebody who betrayed you, somebody who stole from you, somebody who's just annoying to you, Republicans, <laughs> Democrats, conservatives, the Green Party, whatever, liberals, terrorists, drunks, addicts, fools, selfish people, influencers. Who would it be for you? Who would be the people that if God called you to, it would break your back to go to them? Could there be places where your heart is out of alignment with God's heart? Because God loves the bully. God loves the racist. God loves the rapist and the prisoner. God loves the terrorist. And God loves your ex-wife's lawyer. God loves those who have hurt us. This is radical love. This is the way that God loves. He loves despite the extreme depravity of men. This is the heart of God, reaching those furthest from him, reaching the cheaters and liars, the addicted, the self-consumed, with his radical message of love and grace and the opportunity to change. Yo, these are the God stories, right? When you see somebody undergo change like this, these are the times where it's like, like, we just literally celebrated it. I'm telling you, these four men who are up here, there are people out there who hate those men because th things that they have done, places they have been, but God radically transformed them and reached them. Those, that's the Jesus stuff. That's the stuff that gets excited. It's like, oh my gosh, like only God, only God. This is the stuff we saw Jesus doing. He was with prostitutes and tax collectors and traders and rough men. Fishermen were rough men. They weren't intellectuals, all right? They're fishermen. 
Leslie Newbegin said this on mission. He said, I think the deepest motive for mission, this is Christian evangelism, things like that, is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the unusurped dominion of the devil. This is precisely where God called Jonah to go. He called him to go to the edge of darkness and to bring his message. Y'all listen. To follow Jesus is to care about the lost, to care about those who are far from God. And it's almost never comfortable. God and his love for others will call us out of comfort into darkness, criticism, and danger. Because it's not in comfort that we see the power of God, but it's in darkness. John Tyson gave this illustration to co-order senior pastors that I'm a part of, and it transformed my lens on church. Could you throw this up here? He called this the redemptive edge. So when we get saved and you come into church, you're gonna find a level of comfort, right? And what, what we've done in the West is we've created comfortable church because once somebody gets comfortable, that's where they consistently attend and that's where they start to give, right? But if you look at it and where Jesus started to teach the Beatitudes and you start talking about loving enemies and loving people who persecute you and all these different things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, people start to get concerned. It's like, hey, you're getting pretty intense here, all right? And then they start to caution you and say like, whoa, 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 like it's God's good, but like, come on, like you're getting extreme. And then they start to move to criticism and saying, you shouldn't be hanging out with those people. You shouldn't be doing those things. The ministry of Jesus happened on the redemptive edge between criticism and darkness. Criticism because he was eating with sinners. They called him a drunkard and a fool. The time he spent with women. He was criticized for criticizing the Pharisees, coming at the religious teachers of the day for their traditions. He was criticized for his choice of disciples. He was criticized for the high cost of discipleship. And he did his ministry in the outer darkness of the places outside of Jerusalem. Now, if you go in and you look at this word that Jodah got from the Lord, most likely, most scholars would say that he received that word in the temple, in the place of light, in the place of God's presence. For the Israelites, this would have been uh, Israel, this would have been their temple. But look what God did. God called Jonah out of the light into the outer darkness to bring his message of mercy and hope to those who are far away. The power of God is found when we're willing to venture into the areas of criticism and darkness for the sake of those who are lost. God wants to redefine your enemy from being your problem to being your purpose. He wants to move you from your enemy being your enemy to you recognizing your enemy as your mission. This is the father heart of God, that all of his children, lost, hurting, hurting others, would come to know his redemptive love. At some point when you walk with Jesus, he will ask you to do something dangerous. And if he's not asking you to do dangerous things that will bring you criticism, it's probably not because he's not speaking, but because you are not listening. He'll ask you to risk social equity, to share the gospel. Y'all, in our increasingly post-Christian world, where we're no longer in Christendom, 
but we're in a place where there's all these different worldviews. As you share your faith, there is risk. He'll ask you to speak up for the hurting. He, he may well ask you to risk financially, to sacrificially show, sow into his mission of the church. He may, may even ask you to risk physical security and to go to a dangerous place with dangerous people to live a gospel of radical love that they may be radically saved by his grace and become dangerous for his kingdom. This is the promise of Jesus that as far as the curse of sin has gone, his gospel will go. And he's called us as his people to carry his gospel. But can I be honest with you, what's hard for me is often just reaching out to somebody that I know, that I know doesn't like me. It's hard for us to go to the nations if we're not first willing to go to our neighbors. And so the difficulty here is we haven't found the power of God because we're not loving and sharing with the people around us. God first sends us to our neighbors and the people around us. And if we do that, God may well give us the neighborhood. And if God gives us the neighborhood, then God may well give us the city. And if God gives us the city, God may well give us the state. And if he gives us the state, he may give us the nation. And God promises to give us the nations. And so the question we have to ask is, does God have our yes? I want to pastor you, I want to challenge you. Let's be a people that before God asks us to go to the darkness and reach the lost, he already has your yes. He knows that he can trust you as a son, a daughter, a soldier in the kingdom. And if he calls you to walk across the street and to build a strategic relationship with your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, that he has your yes, that you're going to do it. But listen, it will cost you. But here's what you'll find. You'll find the very power of God. There's a story that I heard told about a church in Indonesia, which is a militant Muslim country. And the church was growing there and the government came in and started to, to shut it down. And uh, one, one of the tribes from one of the mosques came through and they took three of their children and they beheaded them and they murdered them. This happened within this last decade. The enemy stole three children from this community and within the week, three other children, one started to prophesy, to call things out there's no way that they could see. One started to uh, have a gift of healing, miraculous, undeniable healing. One had the gift of preaching. It was preaching the gospel where people were coming and being saved. Yo, if we're willing to venture into the darkness, God will bring power. God's discipline is kindness. It was a kindness on Jonah because he was seeking to break his hate and to bring him into his kingdom of grace. He was living under a narrow, nationalistic view of the world. He cared more about his nation than the nations. He cared more about himself than the lost. And God graciously pursued him, although it does not look like it on the surface. So here's a question for you in this section. Does God have your yes? As a Christian, as a Jesus follower, if God calls you, if God pulls on your heart, does he have your yes? When we as a people run from God or turn away from God. He will pursue us, and his pursuit is mercy, okay? So number one, do we love God's mercy heart? Number two, it's not a question. This one's a statement. God pursues those he's called. Verse four, but the Lord hurled, everyone say hurled. hurled. 
a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break apart the ship. Now, this word hurled in the Hebrew, this is like throwing a javelin, all right? It's the same word that they would use for throwing something. So you could translate it as Jonah ran from God and God threw a hurricane at him to get his attention. He didn't just throw a hurricane at him. We're gonna see later, he sticks a whale on him, all right? God loves you enough to chase you down, to throw a storm at you, and to sick a stinking whale on you, to draw you into his purposes. This is called the doctrine of uh, prevenient grace. And the doctrine of prevenient grace is our belief that while we pursue God, God also pursues us. Now notice Jonah is sleeping in this part of the text. He, he is disconnected from reality, right? Have you ever gone through a hard season and you're just like, I'm just gonna go to sleep so that I don't have to look at what's actually happening right now? I imagine Jonah's sleeping and he's like, I'm not really here. I'm not really here, you know? <laughs> and then the pagan sailor, who's not a man of God, who's fighting to save his own life and coincidentally Jonah's life, comes to him and he's like, dude, wake up. Like he's sleeping while all this kind of stuff is happening and the, the pagans on the ship come to him like, what are you doing? Why are you not trying to help us? Tim Keller said this in his book. He said, this is one of, the, of several carefully laid out contrasts between the, the despised pagan sailors and the morally respectable prophet of Israel. While Jonah is out of touch with his peril, the sailors are extremely alert. While Jonah is thoroughly absorbed by his own problems, they are seeking the common good of everyone in the boat. They pray each to their own God, but Jonah does not pray to his. They are, opening, they are open to calling on Jonah's God. In fact, they are re more ready to do this than he is. They're bringing a sharp critique. Now, the book of Jonah, I think, is the sharpest critique we have of religious people in the entirety of the Bible. And they're bringing, they're bringing the sharp critique. They're saying, we're praying. Like, we're trying. We're bringing this to our gods. We're on the ship together. Why aren't you? They're saying, we're in the same boat. Why aren't you trying? Why aren't you praying? Why aren't you engaged? You're supposed to be the pastor, right? Dude, why are you sleeping while we're suffering? Yo, here's the truth. When God's people do not function as we're supposed to, our culture will bring critique against us. Our culture will speak against us because there's a doctrine called the doctrine of common grace, which basically keeps the world uh, from cascading into, into depravity. So it's the doctrine that, it's like while you see somebody who's a Christian, you're like, well, they're a good person, right? There's a doctrine of common grace that God causes, you know, the sun to shine on the godly and the ungodly. Um, that God gives us this understanding of goodness, whether we know him or not. And so what's happening here is these sailors are saying, dude, like, we're all suffering. You should be doing something. We understand that that's something inherently that we should be doing. When the church doesn't live up to its values, the world will notice and will call us to account. Here's the problem. I think we fear being called out, we, we more fear being called out for our beliefs in our modern world than we fear God in that we might not live up to what he's called us to. I think we have more fear of being criticized by unbelievers than we have fear of not being the people that God has called us to be. Let, let's talk about functions of the church. So the primary function of the church is to preach the gospel. 
The primary function of the church, if you look at the message of Jesus, primary function of the church is to say, hey, there is wickedness in your heart because of sin and the fall. This is the message of Christ. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son to become sinner on your behalf that you might walk in God's righteousness. This is the message of the scripture. But alongside of that, gospel-formed Christians who are planted in communities of faith in Jesus, the church, should go out and change the world. We gather together to get recharged, to hear the gospel, to get encouraged, to worship God. And then we go out into the spheres of darkness that God calls us to go into. And we are his people. We carry his message of mercy. How do we do this? By being great bosses, by caring for our employees, by treating them with dignity and respect, by being caring and effective teachers in the schools, by being great nurses and doctors, by being the first to respond to pain. You know, this is the stuff Jesus did. And as his disciples, he's calling us to do the same thing. So why often does the church not do it? I think it's because we've been more focused on conversion than we have been discipleship. We've been more focused on church growth than being the church. And what God calls us to as his people is not just belief. The Bible says the demons believe, right? What God calls us to is a life of following a life of taking up of the cross. And over this past hundred years, the church has really zeroed in on conversions and saying, if you believe, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's the truth. We believe that. But what God actually called us to is something much deeper. I've got two charts for us real quick uh, that I pulled from um, a teaching by Dallas Willard. So this is our modern view of discipleship. First, we become the convert. Then we become the disciple. Then we become the worker. All right, so here's how this plays out. So like, has anybody ever gone to buy a car? Maybe you went to buy a pickup truck. Where are my pickup truck people at? All right, I see you. I saw a few of you went. Uh, our Jeep, where are the Jeep people at? Jeep wave? Anybody? You know you do it. Uh, you go by the Jeep and you buy the Jeep and then they say, hey, do you want to upgrade it? You want to get the rims and tires and the lift kit and all that kind of stuff. What, what we believe is that conversion is buying the vehicle discipleship and mission is adding rims and tires. But that's not actually the biblical vision of following Jesus. The biblical vision of following Jesus is we become a disciple. We walk with him. We learn to do the things that he did. We go out and we do those things. We become salt and light to the world. This is who Jesus has called us to be. Here's how I believe this plays out. One more chart. Okay would become a people who get in God's tangible presence. Have you ever had a moment in worship where it's like, oh my gosh, like I just had an encounter with God. Like you hear something, whatever, you have this moment where you meet with God. You have formation, that's intentional spiritual formation of the image of Christ, and you have mission. These are the threefold aspects that each believer needs to become what's there in the middle, which is a compelling missional disciple. Now, if we just focus on presence, we end up with this hyper-spirituality, right? With no depth, no ability to change the life. If we just focus on formation, we end up with spiritual narcissism. Everything becomes about us, right? It's all about me and my father wounds and all that kind of stuff. We don't have time for anything else. That stuff's real, but there's more. If we just focus on mission, we end up with this vision of secular renewal, which is no more than just secular humanism going out to decrease suffering, not preaching the gospel. But when we have all three of these things, we're people who get in God's tangible presence, we're people who are formed in the image of Christ through spiritual practices of fellowship, of prayer, of spiritual reading, all those sorts of things, then we go out of that and we live on mission. 
and we preach the gospel, we share the gospel with our friends, we do mercy ministry, y'all. That is the church that Christ came to build. So here's the question. Are you awake or are you asleep in the boat? Are you running from God's purpose or are you living out the life that God's called you to? Men, are you standing at the gate as the spiritual leader of your home? Are you asleep letting anything and everything influence your wife and your children? Bosses, would your employees testify to the goodness of God because of the way that you treat them with dignity and grace? Employees, would your bosses recognize that you serve a God of honor and love because of how hard you work for them? Does it inspire them to ask questions of your faith? 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The problem comes when the world quits asking about our hope. And I believe that this is where we're at in the West. I believe that the culture is largely disinterested in the church that they've seen. God has called us to live out the gospel in such a way that causes people to ask questions for which the gospel is the answer. Leslie Newbigin said that. You know, and when we engage, when we wake up, two things will happen. Number one, it gets the attention of the world. When we start engaging in the issues, we're not passive, we're there, we're in it, we're praying, we're interceding. The world will take notice. And number two, it'll get the attention of God. You know, the greatest moves of God start in prayer. People hungry to know God. People who want to seek his face. People who are willing to go out into the darkness. I'll ask the question again, are you awake? Keller points this out. The captain says to the sleeping prophet, arise. This is the same word in the Hebrew that God uses when he calls Jonah to go on mission. So out of pagans, God's word comes. Out of the mouth of the sailors, God speaks. Out of sinners, God calls the saint. The pagan is calling the prophet to repent. And Jonah answers the call. Lastly, we're going to close here. God's power follows when we answer the call. Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know this terrible storm is all my fault. Notice, for all Jonah did wrong, at this moment, he owns it. He repents. He says, you're right. Throw me. Throw me back into the hands of God. And as we'll see, God saves in the craziest ways. He's swallowed by a stinking whale. James Bruckner, in his commentary on Jonah, says this. He says, the significance of the big fish is that the reader is asked to believe the unbelievable. So often, we get caught up on, well, could a whale swallow Jonah? Is there a fish in the Mediterranean that was big enough to do this? The Bible is the story of unbelievable stories. Can a man rise from the dead? Can the blind see? Can the wicked heart be transformed? Can the sour person be made sweet? Can God bring life where there's death? The fish's swallowing of Jonah 
is a sign that Yahweh will not be dissuaded from his intention to present the possibility of repentance and forgiveness to Israel's enemy. He will not give up. It, it demonstrates the outstanding lengths to which God will go to reconcile Jonah and the violent Ninevites to himself through Jonah. Notice, both need mercy. You are never more disconnected from God when you're convinced that you have no sin. That's the pitfall, that's the wickedness of the religious. The fish represents an unbelievable theology. Yahweh wants to save the rebellious and the violent. Through the agency of the big fish, Jonah is forgiven and saved. Also unbelievable, the storm is stilled and the sailors worship the true God and the Ninevites receive the message from Jonah to repent and be saved. In this way, the bigness of the unbelievable fish is finally about God's saving way in the world. The big fish makes a statement about God's extravagant, unrelenting, pursuing, and saving love. Do you know this love? This substitutionary love? The greatest love in the world is substitutionary. Jonah is going to die at this point. He can either die going down with the ship in his pride, or he can die to save others, and his life will have meaning. This is the invitation of Christ. All love is substitutionary. Think about your kids. What do your kids need? They need conversation so that they can develop. They need love and affection so that they can have security. And all of that costs you something. Parents of young kids, we all said, amen, right? It costs you something. It's substitutionary. You're trading your life for theirs. You're trading your comfort so that they can thrive. Your friends, you lay down your preferences so that they can feel loved. There is no true relationship without sacrifice, right? If there's no sacrificial love, you're just networking. You're not in relationship. Your spouse, you lay down your wants and needs to serve theirs. This is substitutionary, sacrificial love. The power of the church is seen when we mimic our Savior by laying down our lives for others. This is the gospel. Jonah left the presence of God and he went into outer darkness. Christ left his position of honor in the presence of God and he came down into a nasty manger and became a carpenter for, and lived 30 years in obscurity. He did three years of radical ministry. He laid down his life. He was nailed, by, nailed to a cross by the people he came to save and he was cast into the sea of God's wrath so that we could receive forgiveness. Jonah was in the whale for three days. Christ was in the grave for three days. Jonah died so the sailors could live. Christ died so that sinners could live. And so the invitation of Jesus in the gospel is that you come to accept this substitutionary love. And that in that, as we taught through Colossians, you'll find true security, a secure identity, that's, that's based on the fact that God loves you on your worst day. You're loved and you're a child of God. On your best day, you're loved and you're a child of God. This is the imitation of the gospel. And so I wanna close with just a time of reflection and hopefully a time of repentance. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take some time. I just wanna lead you through um, some prayer and some thought, some reflection. So if you can, if you're comfortable, bow your heads all across the room. 
I just want to lead you into a time of prayer. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit in. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Let's start first with the Christian. Are you stuck in comfort? Or are you living on that redemptive edge, carrying the gospel and the message of truth? I did this on Friday, the same prayer I'm about to lead you through. But I just want you to let that person come to mind who, if you're really honest, you most despise. That people group, political persuasion, nationality, the race, your ex, whatever it is. And just bring it to God. God, give us your heart and your lens for these people. God, heal our hearts. God, we ask that you would move us from viewing people as our enemies to people as our mission and purpose. God, transform our hearts. Give us a heart of mercy. God, I pray for anybody who's spiritually asleep in their home. God, wake us up. God, give us a concern for the world. God, stir up our hearts to pray. God, make us a people. Let us be a people who you know you have our yes. God, we want to see you move. We want to see you move in power, God. Let it be in Little Rock as it is in heaven. God, choose us. Move in us. God, you have our yes. If you want us to go to our neighbors, we'll do it. God, we know you want us to disciple our kids. We'll do it. We repent of being disengaged in our families and our culture. And God, thank you for your grace. Lead us in the way. And lastly, God, I just pray for anybody right now who hasn't known your saving grace and love. I pray that in this moment, as they open their hearts to you, God, we thank you that your word says that you'll rush in and you'll fill the void. You heal the marks left by sin. You'll relieve us of shame. And God, you'll give us dignity and purpose in our relationship with you. Let's pray together. Some of you may be for the first time. Let's just pray a prayer of trust and submission to the rule of Christ. Pray with me, Jesus, just loud enough to hear your own voice. Jesus, we believe that you are who you say you are, that you are God, and that you love me. I accept your love. I wanna follow you to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.
Hey guys, thanks for listening in. I hope that this message blessed you and it helps you in your journey with Jesus. If it did, leave a comment, leave a review. Things like that help us spread the message of Jesus. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the best way to do that is to follow us on Instagram at, at NLC Downtown Little Rock to follow along with the life of our church.